Hello, Impact Christian Church. My name is Alan Schwartz. I'm one of the elders here at Impact uh, Christian Church, and I'm so excited to share with you what the Lord uh, gave me today. Uh, Some of us here are dating or married, and we love the person we're with, but we really don't know so much about them, and there's always more for us to know about them. Much in the same way, we know a lot about Jesus, but not enough, and there's always more to learn about him, and that's what I want to talk about this morning with you. If we could bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another day of life. Thank you for this life you've given us, Lord, and let us be cool and stay away from this crazy heat wave, Lord, but we're so thankful for another day of life that you've given us and blessed us with, Lord, and I pray for all those struggling either with pain of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, Lord, that you would just bless us abundantly, that you would put your hedge of protection around us, Lord, financially, and that you would give us wisdom always, Lord. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, What I want to talk about today is so different than any other sermon that I've ever given or even a testimony that I've ever spoken about. And it's just about statistics about our love for Jesus and how we actually need to love him more and know more about him, how there's always more to learn about him. And that's actually the title of this message. There's always more to learn. So the first topic I want to talk about this morning with you is one half of American adults, 49% to be exact, don't know whether it was Paul, Peter, John, or Jesus who taught the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. As Pastor Dane was just talking about um, and just finished off the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it was Jesus who started preaching. In fact, he spoke from a mountainside in front of a large crowd. Uh, This speech is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus himself spoke it almost 2,000 years ago and gave mankind the most powerful and profound sermon ever preached to this day. The Sermon on the Mount is so important because it tells us Christians how we are to, learn, how we are to live. Uh, in this sermon, Jesus taught uh, his followers the Lord's Prayer and told them several parables. And even in many um, ways, Jesus' teachings during um, the Sermon on the Mount represented the major ideals of a Christian life. And, for example, Jesus taught about several different subjects, such as prayer, caring for others, the needy, divorce, judging others' salvation, and much more. Another interesting fact about the Sermon on the Mount is that it was actually the longest recorded sermon by Jesus, being three chapters long. Uh, The sermon actually is set early in Jesus' ministry. It was right after he was been baptized by John the Baptist in in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospels, actually, when this takes place. And it's not only important to know who wrote the Sermon on the Mount. It's very important, but it's mostly important to live out the Sermon on the Mount as we're given so many things that the Lord has outlined, how to be a righteous disciple, how to live Uh, righteousness like Christ. And uh, Jesus himself actually gave us eight beatitudes, um, how we're to live. And uh, the word beatitude actually means to have supreme blessingness. And the beatitudes highlight this amazing uh, promised blessings that come when we develop traits that are actually Christ-like. And I want to read these beatitudes with you, and they're the following. The first one being 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What that means is to be poor in spirit is to be humble and teachable and for to learn from Jesus. And Jesus wants us to always humbly acknowledge our need and our desperate desire to need more of him. And the second one is blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted. It's so um, it's such a comfort, comforting Bible verse because we'll face trials and challenges and problems that will come our way that test our faith. But as we mourn our losses, our trials were promised that we'll be blessed as we endure these times of trouble and heartache. Because God will send his Holy Spirit to comfort us, to give us peace in times of need, and he'll be our strength when we are weak. The next one being, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is to be gentle, kind, patient, tolerant, not proud, mighty, or conceited. The Savior showed his meekness. One of my favorite things is showing his weakness by willing to submit to the will of God. Even in a moment of extreme agony, he said to God, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done in Luke twenty-two forty-two. The next one is, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We can come closer to God as we try to follow his teachings and learn more about him. Because the more knowledge we seek, the more he'll bless us and the more we'll understand Jesus Christ. The next one is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus Christ himself was a perfect example of showing forgiveness and mercy. Even when he was suffering on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a perfect example of mercy and grace. And this is important, since all we need, since we all need mercy, we all must show mercy as well. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, because God himself will make all known to us if we are pure in heart. If we strive to be like God, our motives and actions will be honorable, and our hearts also will be pure. Next one is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus encourages us to follow his example by loving everyone so we can live together in peace. I know for a lot of us, including myself, that is very difficult and why we see in 2021 a lot of not harmony and not peace in church, uh, who we voted for on election day, uh, in life in general, why there's not a lot of peace because we're not loving one another like God has called us to. Next one is, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to face criticism from society, friends, co-workers, family, people we may know for the way we live, the things we believe in, our walk with the Lord, our faith. But we must proudly stand up for God in those circumstances and he will bless us not only here on earth, but also by giving us everlasting life in heaven. Now, the second topic that I find really interesting that I want to talk with you here this morning about is 28. That's 28 percent of evangelical church attendees are not born again. And I find a huge reason why that being is Luke 10 to 
it tells us he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, what this means is there's a lot of non-believers who even attend church, but there's not a lot of people who are doing the job of reaching out to them and help bringing them to Jesus Christ by their actions. And us as churchgoers and believers in Jesus Christ need to do a way better job in doing so and plant the seeds that we're called to do and draw others closer to Christ. Church, that number needs to change drastically, and it starts with us being the light. Our actions should draw others closer to Christ rather than further. And a lot of times what we see right now especially is that we're actually drawing non-believers further away than drawing them closer to Christ by our actions and by being pushy and by telling them you got to do this, that, and the other instead of just showing them our fruit of the Spirit. Being born again is the act of God actually getting a grip of your heart and allowing him to transform you from the inside out. It is actually acknowledging that you have been living in sin and you want to change that. The old you is to be gone. The new you is to follow Christ. And when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, that's when things change take place. Because I don't want to be dead in my sin anymore. I do not want to be a slave to the devil, but I want to be a warrior for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us just that. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Things I did in the past are dead, gone, and erased. My future now is led by God. The third topic I want to talk about is marriage. This I find all of them very important, but this I found very encouraging, important, important. And I just hope that you open your heart to receive what I have to say this morning that I believe is from the Lord. Uh, Marriage is a very beautiful covenant that Jesus created that was called between a man and a woman only. Uh, Genesis 1.27, he wastes no time telling us in the first book of the Bible. He says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. When God created a partner for Eve, he, or for Adam, excuse me, he created Eve. Not another Adam, not a Steve. When he created Eve, he didn't create another Eve as well. This means that the perfect partnership requires some level of difference as well as a level of similarity so great that Adam could cry out loudly, this is now my bones and flesh of my flesh. Also, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is the normal method of how God made the bonding both emotionally and physically because it corresponds with the perfect design how Jesus made our bodies and because it's the normal means by which offspring are meant to be created and how God created it to be. For example, if God had intended the human race to be fulfilled Through both heterosexual and homosexual marriage, he would have designed our bodies to allow reproduction through both means and made both means of sexual intercourse healthy and natural. But did you know something very important after I was researching this? Did you know that homosexual intercourse carries a higher risk of disease also? And it's actually recognized in the scripture and tells us that um, in Romans one twenty seven, it says, In the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women 
and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in them selves the due penalty for their error. It wasn't that nothing happened to them. No, for their mistake of doing stuff men to men, there was penalty for their actions. And it saddens me that TV, social media, the lies from the devil has watered down the truth, the word of God right here, and have made us more accepting of this. Now, we should accept them, but not the sin itself. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't say that it's not right. It isn't right. We all sin. That's correct. But as followers of Christ, it should sadden us and disappoint us when we do sin. We are such excuse makers as human beings, and we try to justify our sins with no proof whatsoever, or we make up false evidence to back it up. But that needs to change. We need to go back to the roots and the truth, and that's the Bible. We must allow the Bible to tell us the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Not a TV show, a social media post, not what someone is telling you is right or wrong, but what God is telling you what is right or wrong. Not someone teaching you in school that it's acceptable, that it's right or wrong. We should not want to live in any kind of sin. And the bottom line is when you're in a gay relationship, you are choosing to sin. Much like if you're having premarital sex, you're choosing to sin. When you are into porn, you are sinning. When you're lusting over another man or woman, you're sinning. Much like any other sin, it's not good whatsoever. And that is because it is easier to sin than it is to follow Christ and follow his commands for your life. Because once you sin, you don't have any conviction whatsoever. The sin doesn't always convict us. But the, God, the word of God, if we're believers, it shall. I know many of you won't like to hear what I already have said. And that's okay. I have to say this morning that it's okay because sometimes the truth hurts us right here to our core. And it doesn't make us feel good. And a lot of times we hear sermons that just make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. But this isn't one of them. In fact, it's to convict you and to make you make a U-turn in your life. And to know that you need to stop sinning and start living for Christ. How he's called us to live. Uh, God tells us Christians who stand up for the truth that will be hated and will be persecuted. In these two passages, it says it in Matthew 10 and 2. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Also in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I urge you this morning to stay true to who you are. To stay true in your walk with Christ no matter what anyone tells you to do. The fourth topic I want to talk about. Does God cry? We've all been there with the loss of a family member. A close friend. Tragedy in life. Maybe um, a daughter getting married. It's emotional. A child going to school or moving out of state. Or maybe this one, which is funny. Or maybe our in-laws coming to visit us. Uh, is there a scripture of God crying your thinking? Yeah, in the Bible, in fact, there's three scripture records of God crying. Uh, the first one is while the crowds were celebrating Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, uh, Jesus cried because he knew something that the crowd didn't know. 
when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Jesus, in this passage, he cried for his people because he knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and it broke his heart. That was the first servant. The next time that Jesus cried is his time alone with his father. He knew what was going to take place. He knew that he called him to be sacrificed on the cross, that he was God's one and only son, that he was going to be sacrificed on the cross. And he died and he cried, excuse me, in Hebrews 5, 7. It says during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. And it says with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus cried, feeling his own pain and suffering, knowing what he was going to do for both you and for me. But the thing is, he went along and he did it anyways, regardless of knowing what he was going to have to do that day. The third time that we see that Jesus cried was when Lazarus died. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell on his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept, it shows in John eleven thirty two through 35. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible and has been subject to special, uh, speculation of why he wept. And these are three uh, reasons why they think he wept in here. Some say he wept because he loved Lazarus, which would make total sense. Others say he wept in frustration due to the lack of understanding of Mary and Martha. The third reason and another possibility is that he shared Mary's pain and cried with her. A lot of times people think that Jesus doesn't cry with us, but in fact he does. It says in the word of God, he collects every tear that falls from our eyes because he cares about us that much. The last one fits the character of God revealed in the Old Testament, which is Psalm 147.3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. As I mentioned earlier, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Now that I mentioned, does God cry with us? Absolutely, God cries. Next, topic number five. Does God cry with us? Not just did he cry in the word of God. Well, before Jesus returned to the Father, he promised to not leave us alone comfortless. And what he means by this is he sent someone to be with us, to come alongside us. And that's the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the term is parakletos, from two words, para, meaning from close, beside, and kalia, meaning make a call. 
This uh, term is translated in multiple ways from the same Bible verse from John fourteen sixteen. In the NIV, it means, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. In the New King James Version, it says, helper, that he will be abide with you forever. And in King James Version, it calls a comforter. The CSB version, it calls it a counselor, all meaning the Holy Spirit will be with us forever and that he cries alongside of us. Another translation of the Greek word is counselor. The Holy Spirit is always with us and not only cries with us, but is always there right by our side as well. Now, topic number six Does God ever get hurt? We always hear how God's, you know, so kind and that he's all merciful and powerful. But does God ever get hurt? Well, Jeremiah 821 is fascinating. And it says, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. So God is mourning and he's crushed because he feels the pain of his people. And he doesn't want them to feel crushed or hurt or abandoned. So he's also crushed. And one that I like a lot is Genesis 6, 6. It says the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Earlier before um, Jesus demolished Sodom and Gomorrah because there was so much sin in the world. So much sin that we see today. Uh, homosexuality, uh, prostitution, everything you can imagine happened and God destroyed it. And here in this passage, God is troubled and pained because his people are sinning. They have no repentance. They feel no guilt. They have no grief over their own sin. They don't repent. And they continue to indulge in the same sin over and over. So God is upset. He's hurt. And he's pretty upset at this point in time. And his people. So yes, to answer the question, God does get hurt. Number seven, topic number seven, God used Paul for his glory and he can use you too. No matter how far along you are, no matter how messed up your past is, no matter how messed up you are currently, God could use you. Paul's story is one of my favorite. It's a story of redemption. Before Paul became a Christian, he actually hated Christians. He would put Christians in prison for their faith. He was a martyr. In Acts 8.3, it states, Saul, because that was his name beforehand, if you remember, he began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he would actually drag off both men and women and put them into prison for their walk with Jesus Christ. Now, Saul did everything he could to stop the Christian mission. He broke into homes. He put people in prison when they could be tried and put to death just for their faith. It was a war against Christians and Saul led that pact. Now, Saul continued to do this mission for a long time to seize Christians and traveling to Damascus. But on the way to Damascus, a bright light appeared. He, and he fell to the ground, Saul did at this point in time. A voice resounded questioning why Saul persecuted. And after asking who it was, my favorite right here, God answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Jesus told them to get up and follow his instructions. So what does Saul do? Saul gets up and he stood up, but he couldn't see anything. And the reason is he was blind for three days. Three days going without food. And without water. And in Damascus, God instructed one of his disciples, Aninius, to place his hands on Saul's eyes. 
Aninius obeyed, restoring Saul's sight. Many of you here this morning have probably been blind spiritually, but God's telling you to wake up today. Wake up and come to him and come to know him for the very first time, much like Saul was. Aninius obeyed, restoring Saul's sight, and after regaining his sight and his strength, it's such a miracle what took place. Saul was ready to walk in his new life with Christ. It was so remarkable. It was a miracle. The people couldn't even believe what just took place. Instead of now prosecuting the disciples and persecuting them, he spent time with them. He talked with them. He hung out with them. Instead of dragging church-going men and women to prison more, he actually preached the word of God all over. Instead of plotting to kill others, he was now the one being persecuted for his own faith in Jesus Christ. Paul did amazing things for the Lord and for the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in Acts 13.9, Saul is now called Paul for the first time on the island of Cyprus, much later after the time of his conversion, actually. And after Paul was saved, the first thing he did immediately began preaching about his love for Jesus Christ. His conversion story is miraculous, and it's recorded in several different places. And Paul, Paul began a traveling ministry, planting numerous churches in the name and for Jesus Christ. And when he was not present with the churches, he still cared for them by writing letters of encouragement and teaching. Because he was like a father to those churches, correcting them and showing them the right way to follow Christ. Encouraging them to love one another and to follow Christ all the days of his life. Now, something that I find so important is, are just three lessons we can learn from Paul's life. There's a lot more, but here's three that I want to mention with you this morning. God can meet us wherever we are in life, even in the middle of our junk. The Lord didn't wait for Paul to have a change of heart or for Paul to change or transform. No, while Paul traveled the dusty dirt roads with filth covering his heart and his feet, God called out to him. God meets us where we are too. And we don't have to get cleaned up before we can meet our Savior. While we're lying in filth, living a bad life, we can call out to our wonderful Father. Paul traveled 136 miles from Jerusalem, which was the place of Stephen's death. To Damascus. Now, whether you're here this morning watching, um, if you're traveling a dangerous road that feels like 136 miles or 136 years, like it never ends, you're not too far from God because He'll meet you where He wants to meet you, right where you here are here today, ready, willing, and able to change the course and direction of your life. Secondly. God performs miracles. As we saw with Paul, after Paul's conversion to Christianity, the people were in awe. They were amazed. They couldn't believe that this was the same man who hunted down Christians, now called people to follow Jesus, and now was on fire for the, for the Lord. Now you ask, how could that happen? It could only happen with the power of Christ. By God entering into Paul's life and having a change of heart was miraculous and amazing to see. And he could do the same with you here today. Thirdly is God can use anyone for his purpose. Paul, if you lined up a thousand people 
Paul would have been the last one and the most least likely candidate to spread the gospel message. He stood by while Stephen was stoned to death, not doing anything. He was a martyr. He killed people, Christians. He persecuted Christians himself. Acts 9.15 says, But the Lord said to Aeneas, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. God chose Paul to proclaim his name as there were a lot more righteous people he could have chosen. God picked him. No matter what we've gone through or go through, God could use us too. He could use you or me. God can use us and our baggage for his purposes. The last topic that I want to talk to you about, number eight, is that of the crucifixion. Um, I knew that it was so painful. I couldn't believe that what Jesus did for me and for you on that cross in the hill of Calvary many, many years ago. But I didn't know exactly how brutal it is with all these details I'll, I'll go through. If you don't want to hear it, you can definitely leave, leave this part of the sermon. But I find it very fascinating in the sense of how much Jesus actually cares about you and me as his children. And how much he loves all of mankind. Not all of us know the details and the torture that he actually went through. In Mark 15, it shows us that Jesus... Um, endured physical torment, emotional trauma, and spiritual agony. Some of these things I'll name right now was scourging that happened to Jesus. Scourging was actually an incredibly painful torture inflicted by a whip with multiple leather cords that would commonly have bits of sheep bone and sharp pieces of metal embedded throughout. This instrument were designed to inflict maximum pain and blood loss as each lash would have ripped out large pieces of flesh, exposing the skeletal muscles completely. Jesus endured this horrific pain at the hands of Roman soldiers as a crowd of onlookers watched and did nothing but mock him. Jesus, at this point in time, lost a massive amount of blood. His back literally ripped to shreds, and he was incredibly weak. Jesus' knees were flexed at about 45-degree angle, And he was forced to bear all of his weight with the muscles of his thigh, which is not possible to maintain for more than a few minutes without severe cramp in the muscles of the thigh and calf. Within just a few minutes of the crucifixion of him being placed on the cross, Jesus' shoulders were dislocated. Not many more minutes later after that, Jesus' elbows and wrists would later become dislocated. And the result of this, which is crazy, is his upper limb dislocations in his arms were nine inches longer than normal. The result of these upper limb dislocations resulted in his arms being nine inches longer than normal. In order to just breathe out, Jesus had to push down on the nails in his feet to raise his body and allow his rib cage to move downwards and inwards just to expire air from his lungs. As the six hours of the crucifixion wore on, Jesus was less and less able to bear his weight on his legs. As his thigh and calf muscles became increasingly exhausted, the pain was becoming so much to bear. There was increasing dislocation of his wrists, elbows, and shoulders, 
and further elevation of even his chest wall, making his breathing more and more difficult. Within minutes of the crucifixion, Jesus was severely short of breath. His movements up and down the cross to breathe caused excruciating pain in his wrist, his feet, and his dislocated elbows and shoulders. The pain from his two shattered median nerves in his wrist exploded with every single movement that he made. Throughout all of this, he was completely naked, and the leaders of the Jews, the crowds, and the thieves on both sides of him were swearing, mocking, and laughing at him. And on top of that, I can't imagine, but his mother, Jesus' mother, was watching the whole thing take place. Because Jesus could not maintain adequate ventilation of his lungs, he was now in a state of hypoventilation, meaning inadequate ventilation. His blood oxygen level began to fall, and he developed hypoxia, meaning low blood oxygen. The respiratory center in Jesus' brain sent urgent messages to his lungs, telling him to breathe faster, and Jesus began to pant because of the amount of pain that he was in. He was bleeding from all over his body following the scourging, the crown of thorns, the nails in his wrists, feet, and the lacerations following his beatings and his falls. He was in first degree shock with low blood volume and excessively fast heart rate and excessively fast respiratory rate and excessive sweating. Jesus was also in heart failure and respiratory failure. Jesus could not breathe properly and was slowly suffocating to death. Jesus developed a hemopericardium, which is blood in the pericardial sac of the heart caused by trauma to the body from all his beating and torment. Jesus had fluid around his heart, which prevented Jesus' heart from beating properly as well. And because of the increasingly psychological demands on Jesus' heart and the advanced state of hemopericardium, Jesus is probably eventually sustained cardiac rupture. That's what a lot of people are saying. A lot of people, literally theologians, are saying his heart literally burst. And some scholars think this was the actual cause of his death. And to slow the process of death, the soldiers put a small wooden seat on the cross, which would make Jesus bear all of his weight on his sacrum. But at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus said, Tetelestia, meaning it is finished in Greek. At that moment, he gave up his spirit and he died for you and for me. Jesus died after six hours of the most excruciating, terrifying torture ever and Jesus did it so you and I could be with him in heaven there's only one way to go to heaven guys and it says in John 3 5 and 4 16 it says in 3 5 Jesus answered very truly I tell you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit 14 6 says John 14 6 says I'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me it's such a love and a respect that I have for Jesus even more due to what I've learned about the cross and what Jesus has done for me 
and for you. And I pray that you come to know him if you don't know him here this morning. Or if you've fallen away and you are living in sin. Or if you know that you aren't making the right choices that you should be. Let's um, Actually, there's going to be two prayer counselors on the screen. Reach out to either one. And we'd love to pray with you for anything that you're going through. Or if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if you want to get baptized. That would be amazing. Call one of us. Thank you guys. God bless you abundantly, Impact Christian Church. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's so much to learn about you, Father God. We say we love you. But man, Lord, there's so much more to learn about you, Lord. I pray that we want to be educated more about you, Lord, so we could stand up not only for our faith, but stand up for you more than ever before, Lord. We love you. We treasure you. We can't thank you enough for what you did on the cross and how you died and the torture, the torment that you chose to do for us, Lord, so we could have everlasting life. Even though we don't deserve it, we're forever thankful for it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our lives that we have. They may not be pretty. They may be ugly right now. And they may be hard and difficult, but we thank you for it, Lord, because we know that we have a life lesson to learn from each trial and tragedy that comes our way, Father God. And we thank you for you being you, the perfect, awesome Father. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.